Good evening, everyone, and sorry for this delayed episode. I got my COVID booster on Monday, and it made me a lot less productive, but I am all good now. Last week, we talked about the decline of opiates and how heroin rose and fell in popularity, preventing addictions but leaving many with untreated pain. This week, we'll talk about some research that is slowly but surely advancing the understanding of pain, but before then, I just want to mention that I'm somewhat skipping a bit of pain management history. In particular, I'm basically ignoring anesthesia-related topics, whether for general anesthesia or local anesthesia, because they were already covered in Season 2, specifically in Episodes 2 and 3. But just note that by around the mid-1800s, either chloroform and cocaine were all starting to be used for dealing with pain and knocking out patients for surgery. But so anyway, pain research. While I can't say for sure that he was the first Silas Wire Mitchell was definitely among the most prominent researchers of pain, and is often described as the father of neurology. He was generally pretty talented, so much so that he was once stated to be, quote, the most versatile American since Benjamin Franklin. Which is pretty high praise, I'd say. So we're going to talk about Mitchell's life this episode. Mitchell was born in Philadelphia in 1829 to a well-known physician and medical researcher, whose life pretty much could have served as a preview for Mitchell's. His father was wealthy, moderately famous, a poet, had a taste for expensive things, and regularly hosted extravagant dinner parties with celebrities and influential people as guests. Mitchell was the third of nine children in what sounds like a very lively house both because the number of children, but also because apparently the boys regularly got into fistfights, and the family as a whole would argue about literature over dinner, and then often consult some of their 2,000 books in their dining room library. Just the dining room, which must have been a huge house. Despite this lively household, Mitchell supposedly found his childhood quite boring, and was not considered particularly bright at the time. This could be due to a number of factors, for one, his teachers were apparently physically abusive, which, while more common back in the day, is still not great for children. At age 15, he went to the University of Pennsylvania, who back then it was not the prestigious school it is today, and apparently his friends spent most of their time playing billiards and drinking. What brought out his potential seems to have been when his father fell ill in 1847. Unfortunately, Mitchell's older brother had passed away, leaving him as the eldest son, and so if his father passed away, it would be his responsibility to provide for the family. He transferred from the University of Pennsylvania into Jefferson Medical College, where he apparently began studying 10 to 14 hours each day. Which probably isn't healthy, but I do applaud his work ethic. He did become a doctor and then began seeing patients with his father who unfortunately passed away in 1858, just months before he was to be married. Which must have been incredibly hard. To make matters worse, many of their patients left to see other doctors because Mitchell was relatively inexperienced. And to make matters even more terrible, just four years into his marriage, Mitchell's wife died, and a year after that, his younger brother also died. In 1864, he broke down, very understandably unable to handle all of this, and went on vacation in Europe. Despite the film-worthy tragedies that he experienced, these years were to be tremendously beneficial to him from a professional standpoint. It was in 1862 that Mitchell was placed in charge of the hospital at Turner's Lane, which was dedicated to studying peripheral nerve injuries, which due to the American Civil War, which had just kicked off, were suddenly much more common, but still poorly understood. 
Mitchell and his colleagues, doctors W.W. Keene and G.R. Morehouse, saw hundreds of rare cases, noting that, quote, it was not uncommon to find at one time four or five cases of gunshot injuries of any single large nerve. The war, horrible though it was, provided patients to be studied. These doctors regularly worked until one in the morning, and ultimately this resulted in five publications that covered causalgia, reflex paralysis, neuritis, epilepsy, muscular hyperesthesia, corial afflictions, shock, a precursor to post-traumatic stress disorder, and the psychological effects of amputation. Now, for all you non-clinical folks out there, basically, this is a giant list of nervous system disorders, many of which had not really been studied much before this. And its relevance to our season is that a number of these involve pain, in particular, causalgia, which is pain caused by an injury to a nerve. For example, one patient was shot and had their ulnar nerve damaged, which is a major nerve in your arm. Even after the initial injury had resolved, they continued to report burning sensations in their fingers, which is not where the original injury was and would have seemed unintuitive. In their paper, Gunshot Wounds and Other Injuries of Nerves, Mitchell and his crew described causalgia and treated it to their satisfaction, and it was to become the definitive source of information on nerve disorders for quite some time. Mitchell tried several different experimental treatments, including leeches, electricity, and massage, because this still is the 1800s after all, all of which were based on different hypotheses of how this nerve damage was causing the pain, and none of which seemed to work. He then tried causing blisters, which according to him worked in 90% of patients. We don't still do this today as far as I can tell, so probably doesn't quite work as well as he thought, but our understanding of causalgia has not advanced actually that much since then, despite his work being 150 years ago or so now. Regardless, Mitchell was one of the earliest folks to figure out some of the nervous system's role in pain. His work on these problems and many others led to him becoming world famous, and also eventually to him writing novels, if you can believe it. While he always had an interest in literature, you may recall the lively discussions over dinner from his childhood I mentioned, he was advised early on in his medical career that writing fiction could be bad for his reputation. But by 1880, he was famous and must have figured that writing novels couldn't really hurt his career anymore, and so he did. After 1880, through his death, Mitchell published 19 novels and 150 poems on top of continuing to do his medical research, which must have been a lot of work, and I would know considering I'm a medical researcher and I write a podcast. He lived until the age of 85 when he died of the flu in 1914. He never retired and was actually still working even the week before his death. And I hope that this little episode carries on his name a little further because it definitely deserves some recognition. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll talk about some more research that takes place a little after Mitchell's work and is to lead to new treatments to replace the opioid drugs that had fallen out of favor in the early 1900s. As always, thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, let me know with the links in the show notes. And if you don't like what you hear, please use those links also and tell me why so I can get better. Thanks also to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this outro music. Music